0: Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast. This is episode 15, Unmitigated Gaul. And just like that, I have unlocked another podcasting achievement, my first title pun. First of all, I know this episode is late. I apologize for that, especially in a month where I said I was going to try and pick up the pace of production a little bit, Uh, but it turns out that most of you don't listen to podcasts over Easter weekend anyway, and I hope that you all did have a pleasant Easter if you celebrate it, and if not, had a pleasant Sunday. Last time, we left off in June of 4.55 just as Gaiseric and his vandals were loading the gold, silver, statues, and captives from the sack of Rome onto their ships and sailing back to Carthage with them. The emperor, the venal and incompetent Petronius Maximus, had been killed by the Roman mob, and there was nobody around who was an obvious replacement. Enter a fellow to our story by the name of of Avitus. Who the heck is Eparchius Avitus, you ask? I assume you're asking and I answer either way, Eparchius Avedis was a nobleman of Gaul, who has actually been around the edges of the story for quite a while. And because he was a nobleman from Gaul, his biography gives me a nice framework for talking about Gaul, and for catching up with the region, and what the Visigoths have been up to since we last left them. Gaul has, of course, been the setting for quite a few of our important moments in the story, the invasion of the Vandals and Alans in 408, the ongoing conflicts with the Begaude rebels, the Battle of the Catalonian Fields in 451, so on. But I haven't really paused and talked about the region itself in any detail, so I think it's high time to talk about Roman Gaul right before it ceases to exist. This is exactly the kind of preparation and foresight my family has come to expect from me, so you are not alone, dear listeners. The Gauls had been very loosely connected Celtic tribes that inhabited the lands west of the Rhine and north of the Pyrenees, so mostly France, but also including most of Belgium, Luxembourg, and the westernmost parts of Germany. The lands of the Gauls had been part of the Roman Empire since the literal beginning. The wealth that Julius Caesar amassed from their conquest allowed him to take control of Rome's political apparatus and place the final nail in the coffin of the Republic which Augustus then finished driving in. Over the next 300 years or so, Gaul had become completely and thoroughly Romanized. By the end of the 4th century, the cultural difference between a Gallic noble and an Italian noble would have been pretty imperceptible. The Gallic nobility took an active role in the management of the empire, and could expect to move up the ranks of the government administration just as smoothly as any Italian, or Spaniard, or Illyrian, or anyone else. Diocletian had reorganized the provinces, along with just about every other part of Roman government, in the 290s. He gathered provinces together into groups called dioceses, which were further gathered into prefectures. The system was further refined by Constantine in the 320s. So, why am I telling you that? Two reasons, really. One, because the patterns of this organization will partly determine the way Germanic tribes are settled in the empire, and so the pattern of successor kingdoms. And second, because quite a bit of the structure will survive more directly in the organization of the church. So, the governor of a province now reported to a vicarius or vicar, who was in charge of the diocese, who in turn reported to the relevant prefect. The prefectures were massive. The prefecture of Gaul, for example, included all of Gaul, plus Britain, Spain, and a little bit of Africa. These were the offices held by great men of the highest rank, though they were entirely administrative units, divorced from the military. Gaul itself was divided into two dioceses, Gallia in the north and Vianensis in the south. We're going to focus mostly on Vianensis in this episode. We'll leave the north for later when we finally talk about the Franks. Vianensis was also called the Septum Provinciae, the seven provinces. No prizes for guessing why. The Romans, I have to say, were absolutely crap at naming things. The number of provinces that just get the same name as the one next door plus a number is appalling. It shouldn't really be surprising, I mean, given how they named their children. But the great example is the provinces of Viennensis, which were Aquitania Prima, Aquitania Secunda, Aquitania Tertia, Narbonensis Prima, Narbonensis Secunda, Viennensis, and Alpes Maritimi. Seven provinces, four names, ridiculous, and I'm positive I mispronounced at least half of them. Anyway, I feel myself rambling. So, let us bring on the main man for the episode, Avidus. He is born around 390 in Clermont-Ferrand in Aquitania Prima. Another digression about place names beckons me, but I shall resist. Avidus was born into a family of the very highest rank and so received the best education available. In 418, when Avedis was in his late 20s, Theodoric I's Visigoths were granted lands in Aquitania, as we've heard, especially along the Garonne Valley between Bordeaux and Toulouse, and Theodoric set his capital in the latter city. The locals were, in fact, consulted. The Council of Nobles of the Diocese was called by imperial decree to meet in Arles in April of that same year, and it's hard to imagine that settlement of the Goths wasn't discussed at that council meeting. I can't remember if I talked about this the last time it came up in episode 5, but the Goths hadn't really finished the job fighting the Vandals in Spain when Constantius moved them into Aquitania, and it's likely that in consultation with the Council of Arles, it was decided that the Visigoths were more urgently needed north of the Pyrenees. I am aware I haven't done much to explain the nature of this relationship between the Visigoths and the native population, and there's a good reason for that. It's because I don't understand it. I don't feel bad about that, though, because it seems that everyone shares that difficulty, including observers of the time. Since no text of the agreement survives, we have to make do with what commentators and historians tell us, and it's all just confusing. Traditionally, Federates, were billeted among the local population as garrison troops and so on, rather than just given property of their own. And a portion of the province's tax revenue would be earmarked for their maintenance, and they were incorporated into the military structure. But by the time of the settlement of the Visigoths, that structure is almost entirely made up of Federate troops. Regular legions are rare, and that gives the Federate leaders considerably more power than they had previously had, So, regardless of whether the Visigoths were given land or not, their kings have a proper, regular court set up in Toulouse, and the question of where exactly they fit in the imperial hierarchy is extremely moot. Over the years, it became almost customary that the king of the Visigoths, whoever that was, would gather his army and march to Arles to put pressure on the vicarius and council to amend their foetus in one way or another. It also gave the young and restless fighting men something to do. These marches, as historian Herwig Wolfram points out, take on an air of the rituals of collective bargaining, though with considerably more violence along the way, especially if you happen to be a bystander. But when one Roman official suggested one year marching on Toulouse and destroying the Visigoth's power once and for all, he was roundly shouted down by his colleagues. Visigothic muscle was too important for the security of Gaul, Most importantly, the security of the Gallic landowners, like Avidus's family, to mess with. Why, though? What threat are they facing that is so very scary? Well, the chaos in Spain was concerning, but it didn't spill over the Pyrenees. It stayed around the Piri-Ankles. Apologies to David Crowther of the History of England podcast for stealing that joke. And apologies to all of the rest of you for stealing that joke. Aquitaine was out of reach of the Swaves and remaining vandals, and so it wasn't really a concern. There were Saxon pirates apparently raiding down the Atlantic coast from bases in the Low Countries, and possibly Britain. Don't worry, if eventually Britain will get an episode. But of all the people who one would choose to meet a naval challenge, surely the Goths would be at the bottom of that list. Britain had also been a source for refugees and invaders into Brittany, which had fallen out of Roman control, but that was also a long way from the Visigoth base. So the threat the Visigoths had been imported to meet was actually an internal enemy, as popular movements and the wonderfully ill-defined Bagaude took the general chaos as an opportunity to threaten the social order. And the aristocratic families of the seven provinces like the upper crust of most hierarchical societies, were horrified at the possibility of lower class revolt. So in a tradition that stretches from the assassination of the Gracchi to the Pinkertons, they introduced a corps of enforcers to knock heads together and make sure that everybody knew their place. All of this dynamic was in its infancy when Avedis began the diplomatic career that eventually would lead him to the top of the Imperial Pyramid. Sometime before 421, he was sent by the Gallic nobility to ask Constantius, husband to be of Galla Placidia, for a tax cut, and he was successful. Not long after that, he visited a relative who was living as a hostage of Theodoric in Toulouse. Avidus ended up spending quite a bit of time there and became acquainted with the king's sons, in particular his second son, also named Theodoric, and that relationship would prove crucial in the fullness of time. In the meantime, though, Avidus got on with his career. He joined the army and rose steadily up the chain of command under our friend Flavius Aetius. Aetius was actively trying to keep the Rhine frontier under control with campaigns against the Burgundians, which we've already heard about, as well as our other West German tribes. And always the Visigoths continued to do their job and work to extend their influence over more territory at the same time. One of Theodoric's overarching goals was the acquisition of a Mediterranean port, which would allow the Goths to participate in trade directly. But this was a concession the native nobility and the powers in Italy refused to make. Around 425, Aetius found the winning formula, hiring Hun mercenaries to balance the power of the Visigoths within Gaul. This worked although it did not endear Aetius to Theodoric, and they faced off against each other in 425 and 430. And in 433, when Gala Placidia asked for their help in her power struggle with Aetius, Theodoric was happy to assist the Visigoths' former queen. That one didn't work out, and Etius's power grew. In the meanwhile, Aetius had reached the height of achievement in the army, being appointed as Magister Militum Gallius meaning commander-in-chief of all the military forces in Gaul. Regular forces, that is. For the Federate forces like the Goths, his command was nominal at best. A large Bagaudi rebellion shook the whole region in 435. Chaos reigned from the Loire to the Seine, and the Visigoths threw themselves into that fight and won themselves new privileges. The next year was the year that Aetius and the Huns destroyed the Burgundian kingdom, and Theodoric figured that he could use the resulting reshuffling to snap up some new territory. He marched on Narbonne to finally force the issue of the port, but was driven off by one of Aetius' generals, a fellow named Litorius. This was the fiercest confrontation between the Visigoths and Romans since the settlement. Theodoric was unable to make any progress against Litorius, And by 438, Latorius stood outside Toulouse, ready to remove the Gothic poison from the Roman bloodstream. Negotiation efforts failed, and Latorius fought on until he was unexpectedly captured and killed, and Toulouse was saved. And relations between Theodoric and Aetius hit an all-time low. I'm aware that I'm going through all of this very quickly, but don't worry, it won't be on the test. I'm just as equally aware that I rushed past all of this in the build-up to the Catalonian fields way back when. So this goes a ways to explaining why Theodoric's presence at that battle was such a big deal. What's interesting to me about the death and defeat of Latorius was the reaction of the local Gallo-Romans at the time. They celebrated the Goths' victory. Latorius had been seen as a foreign occupier, an oppressor whose defeat was a victory for the Gallic cause. That Latorius had been a pagan didn't help, but that his army had been so heavily composed of Huns was probably the biggest issue. Given a choice between Theodoric's Goths and Etius's Huns, the locals appeared by and large to prefer the Germans. There was another issue causing friction between Aetius and the Gallic nobility. Jobs. Nobles expected to get jobs in the imperial administration. That was how the system worked. That's what nobles were for especially since those jobs came with so many perks like tax breaks and tax breaks. But as the amount of land that needed administration shrank, along with the tax receipts from that land, more and more of the really plum jobs were going to Italian nobles only, and Gallics were being iced out. There was in fact a strain of xenophobia beginning to show itself among those Italian nobles, as men from the provinces were viewed as outsiders and bumpkins in spite of their long history within the empire. As the representative of the Italian powers, Aetius was identified with them, even though he himself had been born in the Balkans. There seems to have been a cultural reaction within Gaul to these snubs. The 5th century sees a flowering of Gallo-Roman poetry and letter writing, which feels a lot like a literary class trying to assert their Romanness. This has sometimes been interpreted as a consciousness among the nobility that the empire was nearing its collapse. But I think it has more to do with this sense of thwarted entitlement. Now, I am, of course, not a professional historian, just a guy in a basement. But we have to remember, we're still 30 or 40 years from the empire's end. And 40 years took as long to pass then as they do now. All politics are local. And I think the big picture problem is still invisible to most people of the time. The best known and widely studied avatar of this literary scene is named Sidonius Apollinaris, who was actually Avedis' son-in-law. Apparently, a lot of his poems aren't all that good. They're stilted in their diction, and certainly nothing on the level of a Horus or a Catalyst. I am not qualified to judge, personally, the amount I know about Latin poetry would fit on one of my eyelids, so I defer to the better informed. In spite of this hyper-Roman posturing, though, it was becoming clear that the Gallic nobility politically had a new choice available when it came time to decide loyalties, as the Visigothic court grew in its influence and attractiveness. After the defeat of Latorius. Avedis moved over from the military side to the administrative side, and up to the theoretically exalted office of Praetorian Prefect of Gaul, with nominal authority over the whole western edge of the empire. Given that Britain was lost, his part of Africa was poor, and Spain was in chaos, it probably didn't seem like the glorious position it once might have. Avedis' first objective in the new job was to negotiate with Theodoric and try and find some kind of balance between the king and Aetius, and amazingly, he was able to do just that. So the next decade passed relatively peacefully. There were campaigns against the Hispanic swaves in partnership with the Romans, which again gave the young men something to do and provided an opportunity for plunder. But it didn't stop Theodoric from marrying one of his daughters to the Swavic king named Rechiar in 449 in a wedding that took place in Toulouse. And Reciar showed no hesitation in raiding Roman Terraconensis on the way back, possibly with Gothic support. So the relationship between Goth and Gallo-Roman remained as complicated as ever. In the meanwhile, Avedis and his wife, whose name is not recorded unfortunately, had three children two sons, who would both hold high office in later years, and a daughter, named Papianilla, who later married a Gallic senator and poet, the aforementioned Sidonius Apollinaris. Apollinaris is one of our main sources for this period of history, and for Avedis specifically. He is an appealing character, and as imperfect as his poetry may or may not be, he was an engaging letter writer, and left vivid descriptions of life among the barbarians that increasingly dominated life in the province. Most famously, he wrote to an acquaintance quote, Why do you bid me to compose a song, placed as I am among long haired hordes, and having to endure German speech, praising often with a wry face the song of the gluttonous Burgundian who spread rancid butter in his hair? Quote. Apparently, Sidonius had acquired a clutch of unwelcome house guests and they were impeding his muse. Also, apparently, the Burgundians used butter as pomade. More positively, and more relevantly for us, Sidonius also described to a friend Theodoric II and his court in lively and admiring detail. Almost every historian who mentions this uses the word gushing, but I refuse to bend to such pressure. I've pulled out some interesting chunks from it here. Oh, and I should mention that this is coming from my constant companion over these last six months, Herwig Wolfram's History of the Goths. I believe he did the translation as well. I'm going to post a link to the full text in the episode notes, though that translation is slightly different. So, quote, You have often asked me to describe to you in writing his, Theodoric's, appearance and the character of his life. Take first his appearance. His figure is well proportioned. He is shorter than the very tall, taller and more commanding than the average. Every day he shaves the bristles that grow beneath his nostrils. His facial hair is heavy in the hollows of his temples, but on the lowest part of his face his barber constantly shaves it from the cheeks, which retain their youthful appearance. Quote. Now, I'm not sure whether to take that as meaning that Theodoric's beard was well trimmed with sharp edges or that he cultivated some really excellent sideburns. Whoever did the etching that illustrates his Wikipedia article clearly went for the latter. Your thoughts? Send me an email. Anyway, Sidonius continues. You may want to know about his daily life, which is open to the public gaze. Before dawn, he goes with a very small retinue to the services conducted by his priests, and he worships with great earnestness, though, in confidence, one can see that his devotion is a matter of routine rather than of conviction. Administrative duties of the kingdom take up the rest of the morning. Nobles in armor have places by the throne. A crowd of fur-clad guards is allowed in so as to be close at hand, but is excluded from the presence so as not to disturb. Meanwhile, deputations from various people are introduced, and he listens to a great deal of talk, but replies briefly, postponing business he intends to consider, speeding that which is promptly settled. End quote so it's a bit more orderly than Attila's presence chamber where we saw people clustered around the chief shouting their requests at him. This procedure has more in common with the Roman one, where the monarch is kept separate by a curtain from his subjects, and only those with business are permitted to approach. The court is a blend of Roman and Germanic customs coming together to make something new. As Sidonius himself says, quote, you can find there Greek elegance, Gallic plenty, Italian briskness, the dignity of state, the attentiveness of a private home, and the ordered discipline of royalty, End quote. And this last extract, describing the king on a hunt, I found particularly amusing. Quote, he considers it beneath his royal dignity to have his bow slung at his side. But if in the chase a bird or beast appears within his range, he reaches back and an attendant places the bow in his hand. He may urge you first to choose what you wish to have struck down. You choose what to strike, and he strikes what you have chosen. If he ever misses, your vision will most likely be at fault, and not the archer's skill. End quote. In spite of this apparently universal trait of aristocrats everywhere, Apollinaris notes that the king's home life is largely the same as that of his people. Meals are elevated by the finesse of their preparation, not by expensive or exotic ingredients. Theodoric does not set himself apart in his dress other than having clean clothes of the best quality, though several sources note that the Goths in general were very fond of fur. This is all in the Germanic tradition, where the king is a war leader who lives and fights with his men. They accept his authority, but he is still one of them, primas inter pares, first among equals. Materially, the Visigoths seem to have assimilated pretty thoroughly into their Gallo-Roman surroundings. And so as a result, it's difficult, bordering on impossible, to differentiate Gothic graves in the cemeteries around Toulouse from any others of the time. That, it turned out, would be less true in Spain, where a difference is evidence all the way into the 6th century. That's probably not surprising, since daily life in Spain was more violent and unpredictable and so tribal markers would be more strongly adhered to. The relationship between Gaul and Goth received its greatest test in 451. In that year, Aetius called Avidus out of retirement to go to Theodoric again and convince the now-aged king to stand with his old enemy against the might of Attila. The result was, as we discussed in Episode 5, victory and the heroic death of King Theodoric I. After the battle, Edius subtly managed his Germanic allies into not finishing the Huns off. And so we saw Thorismund set off immediately from Chalons back to Toulouse to ensure that none of his brothers seized the throne when they heard of their father's death. Primogenitor, the automatic inheritance of the first son, was not the Germanic way. The German rules of succession were that the king could be elected from a pool of candidates in the royal family, so there was a real risk that in his absence, someone else might beat Thorismund out of the top spot. He needn't have worried, at least not right at that moment. He was acclaimed king of the Visigoths and ruled for two whole years before he was murdered by his younger brother in 453. I said he didn't need to worry at that particular moment. The younger brother in question was Theodoric II, whom Avidus counted as a friend from those days spent in his father's court. Avidus, though, was done with politics. The West had been saved, Attila and his host had vanished over the eastern horizon, and he himself was getting on a bit by now, at around 63 years old. He went back to his villa in Idot, which looks like a lovely spot by a lake near his hometown of Clermont. But the quiet life only lasted a couple of years for Avidus. Petronius Maximus seized the throne through the murder of Valentinian, which created a problem with the Visigoths, who still felt a certain kinship to the house of Theodosius in spite of everything. So Maximus pushed Avedis to go and see his old friend Theodoric II and reaffirm Visigothic support for imperial rule. Who knows what Avedis thought of Maximus's coup, but he did as he was told. Not long after he arrived in Toulouse, though, a messenger arrived with startling news. The Vandals had declared war and sacked the city, and Maximus had been killed. He had no heir, and no one knew who the new emperor would be. Ovidus related all of this to Theodoric, who apparently looked at his old friend with a raised eyebrow and said, Well, why couldn't it be you? Now there's a thought. There's no way to know whether Ovidus had considered such a possibility before, of course. I suspect that every Roman of senatorial rank at some point, alone in his room, scribbled on a wax tablet... Imperator Rufus Ego Maximus, over and over again. But then he scraped that tablet clear, well aware of the effect that kind of ambition could have on one's life expectancy. But now, here was a genuine opportunity standing in front of Avidus, in the person of Theodoric and his army of hardened Gothic warriors. I know what I would have done, which is tell Theodoric to forget it, But then I'm not a Gallo-Roman aristocrat, and that is at least part of the reason I am now a podcaster. But Avidus decided to grab that brass ring. The Visigoths hailed him as their emperor and marched with him to Arles, where the Council of the Seven Provinces was prevailed upon to acclaim him as well. I am sure they were convinced by Avidus's history of earnest hard work and sterling reputation, and were not at all influenced by the forest of shiny, pointy spears that stood behind him. You would think the next step would be to get down to Ravenna, or maybe all the way to Rome if you could, and make sure the Italians were on board. But no, Avidus stayed in Gaul for three months, making sure he had the support of the local nobility and regular forces. This seems to have gone smoothly enough. The Gallic nobles knew Avidus, he was one of them, and they trusted him. And along the way word arrived that the Roman Senate had accepted him as emperor as well. Lastly, a quick march over eastward was enough to bring Illyricum into line, and so everything was looking rosy. Finally, the time had come to head on down to Italy and make the thing official. Avidus was accompanied by a large force of Visigoths and as his bodyguard. He swung through Ravenna, dropped off a garrison there, and moved on to Rome. Once there, his son-in-law Sidonius recited a panegyric, a poem of praise that he had composed for the occasion. Avidus really was a competent administrator, and he really was committed to restoring the empire's authority over its old territory. But the deck was stacked against him from the start. Rome was still a city traumatized by the Vandals' sacking. Food was in short supply, and Gaiseric was in firm command of Sicily and the other islands of the Western Med. Avidus had to supply his Visigothic garrisons, which meant prioritizing food shipments to them and leaving out the local population not a formula for general popularity. And he lost the support of the nobility by attempting to balance the representation in government a bit and giving jobs to Gallic aristocrats that the Italians believed belonged to them. Resentment grew. The obvious first step in that reasserting control program was to take back the bread baskets of Sicily and Sardinia. And to that end, Avedis dispatched armies south under the command of a pair of generals named Majorian and Ricamer. Ricimer was from a prominent family of Roman military officers and a successful, reasonably famous commander. He had actually been one of Petronius Maximus's rivals for the throne after Valentinian had been murdered. Ricimer's background is a bit more obscure. Sidonius tells us he was half Sueve and half Visigoth, and so was excluded from any chance at the throne. But that he too was certainly an able general, and while he and Majorian may or may not have been friends. They were certainly colleagues who knew each other and could work together. That would be helpful in the campaign against the Vandals. Less helpful to Avitus personally. Initially, the signs were good. The Vandals were defeated at least twice, once on land and once at sea. And these were enough of a setback to them that Avitus was able to threaten Gaiseric with invasion if he didn't adhere to the terms of the old treaty. So attention then turned to Hispania. The Sueves. Remember, they had come to Hispania with the Vandals, but broke with them before the crossing to Africa. Anyway, they had raided into Terra Canensis in the northeast, the only part of the peninsula under firm Roman control. Ovidus reacted by asking Theodore to go and sort that situation out for him. So Theodore gathered his army, along with a company of Burgundians, and crossed the mountains. The Visigoths met the swaves at a place called Paramus Fields, near Astorga. The Swaves were driven back from Terra Cadensis and back further, as the Visigoths ravaged Galicia and captured their capital at Braga. Some sources say the Swave kingdom was destroyed completely in this campaign, but that's not really the case. They were driven way back into modern Portugal, to an area around their capital at Braga, and the whole peninsula sank into anarchy. Again. The Visigoths remained in-country, pursuing the Swaves and whatever other advantage they thought they could take. They still maintained that they were acting as Federates of Avedis, but it was pretty clear the only orders from him that they would be following were the ones that aligned with their interests. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, things were coming to a head. Popular protests against Avidus's barbarian army were rising, and while slightly unfair, you can kind of see their point. The population had just had a huge amount of their property removed by one bunch of barbarians, and now the Emperor, who was supposed to be protecting them, was instead transferring what little they had left to another bunch of barbarians. In an effort to ease the tension, Avedis sent the Visigoth garrisons away. It it was a bonehead move, but in Avedis' defense, there probably weren't any good moves. By the way, this is all only one version of the events that I'm relating. The actual chronology of Avedis' reign is very hard to unpick because the sources are just not there for us. There are only a couple of confused chronicles, Hydatius, who was roughly contemporary, and John of Antioch, writing from the other side of the empire 300 years later. Other than a couple fragments of Jordanes and Priscus and the Panegyrics of Sidonius, that's really all we've got. So I'm relating my understanding of how it went down, pulled together from a couple of historians, but you'll find other versions depending on who you read. Also, just because I don't say it enough, I do have a page on the website where I list the sources I use for this podcast. Link in show notes, and show notes for every episode. Okay, moving on. In the fall, or early winter, of 456, when the Vandals wouldn't be able to sail, Ricimer and Majorian rebelled against Avedis' rule. They murdered Avedis' Gothic patrician and moved to secure control of Italy. Avedis apparently was an arl, though whether he had fled the rebellion or had moved there prior isn't clear. Either way, he gathered the loyal troops he could, probably quite a few of them were the Gothic garrison troops he had just sent away, but he couldn't call on Theodoric's help, since he was still in Spain. Nonetheless, Avedis and his troops marched over the Alps and met Ricomir and Majorian at Piacenza. It didn't go well. Avedis' army was soundly beaten, and Avedis himself was captured. In an odd touch, he wasn't immediately killed. Instead, he agreed to be ordained as the Bishop of Piacenza. But a month later, he was dead. Probably murdered. And in this case, I'm a fan of Mike Duncan's theory that the initial leniency was about courting the approval of Constantinople for the usurpers. But we'll never really know. Avedis was around 66 years old and had been emperor of the Roman Empire for around a year. I feel like he got a bum deal. And that on the day in Toulouse when news came of Maximus's death, he should have told Theodoric to stop talking nonsense and pour another cup of wine. But... Sic Biscuitus Disintegrat. Avitus had tried to arrest the centrifugal disintegration of the empire. Being a Gaul himself, he took a gallocentric approach to the problem, correcting the imbalance in the imperial administration's staffing in a way more favorable to him and his fellow Gauls. But the Vandal presence in Africa had made Italy into the front line, and it seems to me the Italians were developing a siege mentality and distrustful of outsiders. This had been going on for quite a bit longer than that, actually. Historian Guy Halsall suggests that the emperor's move to Milan meant that the Senate, left behind in Rome, had turned inward and become less and less interested in the world beyond their own parochial concerns. It now fell to Majorian and Ricamer to take up the project of stitching up the empire's wounds. Before we do that, though, in the next episode, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and do an episode that I have been thinking about since before I even thought about doing the podcast. I'm not quite ready to let go of the Theodosian women. So, next time, I'm going to talk about the parallel lives of the two most impressive of them, Gala Placidia and Elia Pulcheria. I, for one, am looking forward to it, and it's my show. So... There were a couple of new reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I am very grateful. Shoutouts to Captain Teve and MB Frenchie for those. Frenchie, your review in particular was very touching. Thank you. More ratings and reviews are always welcome. And remember to subscribe to the podcast as well. I will try to release on a regular schedule, but I obviously don't always manage it, as this one is ample evidence. And I'd hate for y'all to miss a new one. I am, like I said, trying to pick up the pace of episode production a bit, though that all rings very hollow. So hopefully the wait for that next one won't be too long. Until then, as always, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Dark Ages Pod in either case. Or search for me on Facebook, Dark Ages Podcast. Until then, take care.